I'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians. It's often uh, difficult for people who attend a church occasionally or are visiting with friends or family like some of you are today. And you wonder, why in the world did you ever end up in a passage like this that we're going to look at today? (laughs) And the reason is called expositional preaching. It's where you start with 1 Corinthians 1.1 and you go all the way to the end and you teach everything in between. And here we are in the uh, tail end of chapter 14. And so we are looking at the topic of spiritual gifts, which began in chapter 12 and through chapter 14. It deals primarily with the gift of tongues and how that was being exercised within the life of the Corinthian church. Paul has dealt with this with some force because in general the Corinthians had greatly misunderstood and misapplied the nature of all spiritual gifts, and most especially the gift of tongues. Specifically, they had carried into their Corinthian Christian church practice that which was popular in their pre-Christian mystery, religion, ecstatic utterance experience. Now, if you haven't been here over the last several weeks, you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. This is our third message in chapter 14, and there's one more to go. So the gift of tongues is the gift of language, and Paul has been addressing the issues related to the Corinthian church's usage of tongues and the perceived spiritual superiority that they believe they possessed because they profess to have this gift of tongues. So, what is going to be an incredibly brief review of all of chapter 14 that we've already looked at, Paul has shown them why prophecy is superior to tongues, chiefly because prophecy edifies the entire congregation. Prophecy is the teaching of the revealed Word of God. Tongues does not do that. Prophecy benefits everyone in the church. Tongues only benefits the individual in the way they were purporting to use it. So, Tongues are unintelligible. With a genuine gift, tongues is a foreign language. And unless you know that language, you don't understand anything that the person speaking is saying. You can't be enriched by it. You can't be blessed by it. You can't be challenged by it. You're basically listening to someone speak in what you would consider to be gibberish because you don't understand any of it. In the mystery religion experience, the individual believed they were communing with the gods... In the language of the gods, they themselves could not understand that language. Only the god could understand that language. So in either usage, those that heard what was being said did not and could not understand what was being said without someone to interpret it. Therefore, tongues was of no edifying value within the assembly of the church. Thirdly, tongues provides an emotional benefit for the individual who professes to have the gift because they believe they have communed with the gods. This selfishly directs attention to themselves as opposed to the content of what is being said. Because they believe they were spiritually superior, because they possess the gift of tongues, if they were to break out in an utterance in this language, 
people would look at them and go, boy, look at him go. He's just really talking to God today. I'm sure that's incredible, but I have no idea what he is actually saying. So there was an emotional benefit to the individual that was speaking the tongue, but there was no edifying value to anybody who heard what was being said. That's a very, very brief review over probably 60-some minutes of teaching. So here we're going to begin the new section, number four in our continuing outline, Tongues are a sign. In this section, Paul really gets to the heart of the matter to teach the Corinthians about the true nature of tongues. Why didn't Paul start here? Because Paul builds his case in kind of a crescendo. And as he builds the case, he disassembles their beliefs and what they believe to be true and then helps them to rebuild it on the truth that he's going to present to them. So tongues are a sign. Let's read together from chapter 14, verses 20 through 28. Here's what God's Word says. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring what God, that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, it's always important for me to emphasize that if you are to read this passage all by itself, you're not really going to have the context of everything Paul has said about the gift of tongues, and that would not be in the context of everything that Paul has taught about spiritual gifts. So this is a continuation of what Paul is helping this people understand that they've misapplied in the, in the area of spiritual gifts. So as we continue in our outline, tongues are a sign. Letter A, Paul begins this part of his discussion with them. Be mature in your thinking. Now that might seem odd that he would say such a thing to them. Verse 20, brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. This is not the first time that Paul has called out the church in Corinth for their spiritual immaturity. In fact, the entirety of this book is laced with the obvious reality that the, that the spiritual Maturity level of the Corinthians is incredibly low. He's calling on them again as they think about tongues in particular in the context of spiritual gifts. Be mature 
in your thinking. Now, there are divisions and factions within the church. There are quarrels and lawsuits taking place within the church. There is rampant immorality. Paul is not speaking to an incredibly mature group of people, so he's calling upon them to once again exercise maturity as they listen to what it is he's about to say to them. They have a total misunderstanding of the nature and the purpose of gifts because there is a lack of maturity and honest inquiry into these spiritual matters. Now remember, they believe that if you spoke in tongues or if you had the gift of prophecy or the gift of knowledge, you were of the spiritual elite. If you did not possess those gifts, you were not elite. You were just a commoner. And you would be blessed to be in the presence of the spiritual elite. They totally misunderstood. God gave gifts sovereignly for the purpose of building up and edifying the church. So to be childish in thinking is to be immature. Paul makes a connection between their thinking and their practice. Don't be childish in your thinking, yet in evil be infants. I've said this over and over again. What we believe is going to determine what we do. If you don't think it's wrong to drive 80 miles an hour in the 55 mile an hour zone that is Route 30, you're going to drive 80 because you don't think it's wrong. I hope I'm talking to some of you because I get tired of passing, getting passed by people doing 80 and a 55. But the reality is what we believe, what we think to be true is going to determine how we act. I can't tell you the number of people that I have talked to that have rationalized clear sinful behavior by redefining what is sinful. Does that, does that sound familiar in our culture today? It's not wrong to do these things. Why? Because we've, we've redefined what is wrong. What we think is going to determine what we do. So Paul calls upon them, don't be immature in your thinking, yet in your actions be like an infant. Now we are born sinful, but in reality there's a pretty insignificant amount of sin that an infant can actually commit, right? I mean, the worst that he can do is sit there and cry and cry and cry because he's hungry. He wants to be held. He wants to be, he wants to be cuddled. He wants to be entertained. He wants something. So he's going to cry out. There's not a lot of sin that your infant can commit. What about your teenager? He's a good kid. Don't elbow him like that. Come on. I saw that. <laughs> I don't see it all, but I see some. <laughs> But you think about the amount of sin that a full-grown, rational adult can commit and compare that to something that an infant can commit, and there's just really no comparison at all. So Paul says, be mature in your thinking. Be like an infant in your evil ways. And here's the reality. They had virtually all of the manifestations of the flesh, and they had almost none of the manifestation of being filled with the Spirit. That's the group of people that Paul is dealing with. So he's appealing to them to be mature in how they understand what he's going to say to them as it relates specifically to this issue of tongues. So Paul issues the call to be mature in your thinking and understand the purpose of tongues. Letter B. The purpose is now stated by Paul for the gift of tongues. Now, if you will notice in verse 21, probably 
That verse is in all caps. Does your translation have that? Mine does. You know why it has that? It's because it's a quotation from the Old Testament. So Paul isn't just saying, here's the purpose, and I think I'm going to make something up. Paul goes back into Scripture, back into the Old Testament, and he gives the actual purpose for the gift of tongues. Here's what it says. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even and even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, anytime you see the all caps, it goes back to something in the Old Testament, and that becomes the foundation that the teaching is going to be built upon. When you see the old caps and you see a reference to the Old Testament, you go, man, that's not that important. It's incredibly important because the New Testament, in a sense, is a commentary on what has been revealed in the New Testament. It is a completion of what was partially revealed to the saints of old. So what we see here is a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Paul takes a little bit of a liberty in how he rephrases what these verses say to make the point about the purpose of tongues. God says through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel in this day that there is going to come a day when you are going to hear from strangers. You're going to hear from me from the language of foreigners and even then you're not going to listen to what it is I have to say. I was talking with Jody in the back before service began, and we were talking about how the church tends to compromise. They don't want to speak the truth about God's Word. They want to try to make it palatable to people who really aren't in the church or people who aren't Christians. The bottom line is this. God's Word is truth. And the prophets of old were killed by the nation of Israel because they spoke the truth. Isaiah is saying there's going to come a day when strangers, people who speak a foreign language, are going to reveal to you things about me, and even then you're not going to listen. Now why would Paul say that? Because this is exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. When the believers were gathered in the upper room following the instructions of Jesus, and as we looked at last week, they were gathered together and they were praying, and God poured out the Holy Spirit upon the believing community. We're going to read this again, Acts 2, 5-11. through Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, that roaring When the crowd came together and were bewildered, why? Because each one of them was hearing them speak his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And he goes through a list all the different people groups who were present. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya and around Serene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them 
in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, I didn't investigate this to be able to say this, but I would guess that this group of nations probably represents the vast majority of the known groups in that area. So here on the day of Pentecost, which is one of three major feasts for the Israelites where people from all over the world who were Jewish came to Jerusalem to worship, they were hearing people speak of the mighty deeds of God in their own native language from men who were fishermen. Probably never ever been out of the area that they were born and raised in and these people are hearing them speak in their own language. Now, many on that day were saved and many were saved on the days following but the nation of Israel as a whole has not believed that Jesus is their Messiah. They have rejected Him and therefore they have rejected God. So what Isaiah prophesied was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So as Paul is calling them to think maturely, he is calling upon them to set aside the immaturity of their belief as it had related to this mystery religion experience that they had brought into the Corinthian church with them. He's saying, set that aside. I want you to set aside your immaturity about this thing. I want you to listen to what the Word of God says about this, and I want you to be honest in your assessment of what it is you are hearing from me. They're immature in their thinking, having embraced and held on to this previous idolatrous practice, And they've never investigated what Scripture may or may not say about such an activity. So the purpose stated by Paul is based upon this reference in Isaiah, and that is this. Let us see, tongues are a sign to unbelievers. The beginning part of verse 22. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. The phrase, so then, is how Paul makes the connection between what he has just quoted in Isaiah and what he is about to say to them about the nature and the purpose of tongues in its great detail. Just as on the day of Pentecost, where unbelieving Jews heard about Jesus in these native tongues or languages, it is a sign to the unbeliever to respond to God. Paul has just explained the sole purpose for the gift of tongues. It is a sign to the unbeliever. Now the key is, what does Paul mean by it being a sign? Well, Paul uses the context of these two verses in Isaiah, and he's going to use verses 23 through 25 to explain what he means that that tongues are a sign to the unbelievers. So a sign is is a message from God to the unbeliever. All throughout Israel's history, God spoke to the people through the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. It was a message to them, and in this sense, this is what the sign is. The sign is a message. Now, there's a whole lot of detail that I could try to explain on that. I don't think it would really help, though, because it's it's really, really complex. As Paul is pulling out of a Jewish historical custom experience what he is saying about this sign being a message. 
So the sign has several components to it, which Paul pulls out from Jewish practice. And that is that it is a message of judgment, it is a message of authority, and it is a message of affirmation. So you don't need to write all of that down. It's just kind of the bigger context. And each of those pieces is fairly complicated to completely flesh out. So what Isaiah prophesied came to fulfillment at Pentecost. So let's look again at what Isaiah has prophesied and what has taken place here on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Acts 2, 7 and 8. As the people heard these Galileans speaking in their native language, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? They were hearing a message from God through these individuals who did not know the language about Himself. So the response to this message continues. Verses 12 and 13. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. So all the people who are responding are Jews. They've heard this mighty sound. They've heard all of these people speaking in their native language, knowing that they're just Galileans. And some of them are saying, what does this mean? And others are saying, ah, they're all just drunk. It's just gibberish. It doesn't mean a thing. And what you have here is the epitome of why God gave the gift of tongues. It is a sign to unbelievers. So, the content of the mighty works of God are not recorded for us in what all the Jewish people were hearing, all the Jews from all these different regions, but I can assume that it is a confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah and that He fulfilled all the prophecies about the Messiah and you better listen carefully because this message is incredibly important. Now, I build that upon not only what takes place here, but then on the sermon that Peter gives, his first sermon, this fisherman who didn't go to, um, uh, I forgot the word just escaped me, he didn't go to rabbi school to learn these things. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he began to speak about the mighty deeds of God as having been fulfilled through the life, the ministry of Jesus. So the heart of the gospel message from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, given by John the Baptist, was what? You remember? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who did Jesus preach that message to? Did He preach it to the Jews? Absolutely He did. Paul took that message and he expanded it to the Gentiles. And so this sign, this gift on the day of Pentecost, which has the heart of the gospel message wrapped up in it, is a message to unbelievers. The message to unbelievers is a blessing to those that will believe and it is judgment to those who will reject it. This is a part of why Paul calls the sign, a message, because it instills in it the wrath of God. If you reject Jesus, you will submit yourself to the wrath of God. It's just the way it is. So based upon Paul's usage of Isaiah here and the fulfillment of that prophecy at Pentecost, tongues is a sign or a message 
for the unbeliever. Now Paul's going to continue to flesh this out in the remaining parts of this section. The second part of verse 22 is a very brief segue into what he's going to later say about prophecy. So verse 22b says, But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. So again, Paul states why he prefers prophecy over tongues, because prophecy is a message to believers. Now again, we'll talk about that more a little bit later on. So there's illustrations that Paul uses here that are going to explain what he means about tongues being a sign. So there's two illustrations, letter I. The illustration is a sign for chaos. Now, is that what God intends? Does God intend for any spiritual gift to be something that brings about chaos? Well, absolutely not. But this is the experience. Verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? Paul's asking a rhetorical question with the expected answer of, yeah, they're going to think we're crazy if they come in and hear and see what's going on in our assembly. So take a little note of this. The setting is a regular gathering for church. Everyone who is assembled is speaking in tongues. It's not just a single person, and there might be some hyperbole in everyone. It probably means the majority of the people that are gathered are speaking in tongues. So the tongue could be a legitimate language... Or the tongue could be something that was common in the mystery religion practice. So the word ungifted there actually means uninstructed. It's better translated that way. Ungifted seems to mean that they don't have the gift of tongues. That's not what Paul means. He says unbelievers or ungifted or uninstructed individuals that are that are present that are seeing this, what is their response going to be? It's going to be utter badness. So think about this. So we've got, what, 50 people in here or so. And let's imagine that 30 of you decided that God had given you an utterance that just had to be shared. It just had to be. You couldn't sit in your seat. You just had to get up. You had to, you had to say out loud what this impression was in your spirit, and you got up to do that. And you did it in French, and you did it in Spanish, and one did it in Korean, and one did it in Ukrainian, one did it in, in some other language, and you'd, you'd be going, people coming, what's going on in here? You, you guys are nuts. This, this isn't church. What is this? Well, that's what's taking place. So as in the day of Pentecost, you had the unbelievers who would come in, who who were there and heard the languages being spoken, and they discounted what was being done, and they said, you guys are all drunk. And that would be the experience of an individual who was not a believer, not instructed in the things of God, to come in and hear or see an experience where the majority of the people are up speaking in a language that they did not understand. So in that instance, the unbeliever who comes in to hear whatever is being said, they cannot understand the sign, they cannot understand the message. The content makes no sense, so there is no value in it. It just appears to be a place of religious crazies. That's what it really would look like. Now, this is important. The difference between what took place at Pentecost and what is taking place in Corinth is that at Pentecost, the sign or the message was very clearly understood by the majority of the people. We're hearing them speak in our own language, yet they're just Galileans. How can this be? So in Corinth, people were only hearing gibberish. 
either real or either real untranslated languages, and the sign or the message was not understood, or it was counterfeited tongues, and it wouldn't make any sense anyway. I mentioned this to you in a message many, many months ago that um, I was told of a story of a missionary who is in another area of the world, and he was preaching the gospel, and he didn't speak the native language, and he had a translator over on his side who was speaking into a microphone and speaking in the language that the people could understand. And as the pastor was, or the missionary was going through his message, he began to notice that the individual was no longer talking. And he looked over and he said, why are you not translating? He said, I hear you in my own language. They hear you in our own language. That's the gift of tongues. It's a sign for the unbeliever to hear the message so that they can respond. And they'll either respond and be blessed, or they will respond and reject it and fall under the wrath of God. And this gets fleshed out just a little bit more. Now, the second illustration here is a sign for conviction. Verse 24, Paul is picking up on what he used in 22 as a segue. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. So the setting here is just the same, it's a regular church gathering, but rather than everyone speaking in a foreign language or in a counterfeit tongue and no one being able to understand it, the unbeliever or the uninstructed individual who is there can hear the message or hear the sign in their own native language And they can understand it. The content of the prophecy is clearly understood and it does not reflect crazy chaos. Now you will again notice the connection that Paul makes here. The message of the prophecy brings the unbeliever to account. Meaning he has to respond to the heart of the gospel message that he's hearing, either to repent and believe, or he will reject and be judged. So tongues is a sign for the unbeliever to either accept or to reject. He will either be called to account and deal with it, or he will dismiss it and incur the wrath of God. It's a blessing that is wrapped up in the message, but the other side of that message is rejection and wrath if we don't embrace the heart of the gospel message. This is what Paul says here. Conviction brings commitment. Think about this. If you're in a church setting and you hear the most impassioned teacher you've ever heard in your life and people all around you are just responding in droves and you can't understand a single word he says, where is the conviction? What would you be convicted of? How could you possibly respond? You couldn't. And so tongues is a sign for the unbeliever. The message is is to bring about conviction so that we will make the commitment to the Lord. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. So conviction exposes the condition of our heart. It reveals our sin, it reveals our selfishness, it reveals our need for redemption. That's the purpose 
of the message given in the sign of this language. The unbeliever hearing the clear prophetic teaching of God's Word is called to account by God and by those who are speaking for God. So in Paul's illustration, the unbeliever repents and believes and falls on his face to worship God. And this response affirms that God is in your midst and working through the teaching of His Word. So the unbeliever hearing the untranslated tongue, whether real or imagined, would never ever be convicted because they couldn't understand what was being said. So the message or the sign that is designed to be for the unbeliever is not being fulfilled in the way that it should. And in fact, in Corinth, it's creating a situation of chaos. So thinking about the two scenarios, which is preferable? That unbelievers leave the gathering thinking that that is the craziest group of people I've ever met in my life? Or an unbeliever who is leaving convicted of their sin having been called to account by God through those who are teaching God's Word, which eventually brings forth their redemption. So which one is preferable? Well, it's obvious, right? This is, again, why Paul emphasizes his preference for prophecy or the teaching of God's Word over tongues, because prophecy is a message that can be clearly understood and can bring about conviction where an untranslated tongue could never, ever do that. So, the remaining verses in chapter 14 deal with, in general, the chaotic nature of the Corinthian church service. And in this, Paul is going to make two specific applications and one general, but we're only going to deal with the one specific application as it deals with where we are today, and that is the gift of tongues. So, Paul is going to give the procedure for tongues. Next, he's going to give the procedure for prophecy, and then he's going to give procedures for other issues as it relates to worship in Corinth. So this is where we're going to conclude today. So the Corinthian church service had no real order at all. There was no such thing as three hymns, an offering, and a message. Isn't that how we grew up in church? There's some people who say, hey, you didn't do three hymns and a message. This isn't church to me. What happened? No such thing in Corinth. It was just total chaos. Everyone wanted to participate, and they did. So remember from early in our study how fractured they were. They disagreed with one another. There were so many different sources of approved truth that they wanted to over-teach everybody else. They disagreed about who the best pastor was. And so everybody had something to say, and they wanted to be heard. So the Corinthian church gathering was the social media platform of the day. Think about that. (laughs) Isn't social media just terribly destructive? I mean, everybody has something to say and they feel obligated to say it. And if you don't agree with it, then there's something wrong with you. And buddy, I'm going to come after you hard. So this is what's taking place in the church of Corinth. It's the social media platform and they all wanted to be heard. So Paul's guidelines here is the call for order. This is a general call that applies to each of the other categories, but specifically as it relates to tongue. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. I don't know that I could really appreciate how chaotic it would be in a church service where everyone had something to say 
and would just stand up and say it regardless of what else was happening in a church service. I, I, just, I just can't imagine how inconsiderate it would be, how um, difficult it would be, people getting agitated, people disagreeing, people starting to murmur with one another, them jumping up, and pretty soon you've, you've got a miniature riot on your hands because everybody wants to be heard and they may not like the things someone else is saying. So Paul lists some examples here of what probably is taking place in their gathering. Everyone is more interested in talking than they are in listening. So one has a psalm that would refer to an Old Testament reading or an Old Testament psalm that was traditionally sung in a worship service. There's a teaching, probably indicates a favorite doctrine or a pet subject that was was presented and then expanded upon, remembering all the different sources of truth. Others had what they claimed that was a new revelation from God and Everybody would have to hear that because this is new and different and exciting. Others would speak in a tongue, whether true or imaginary, while others would still allegedly give some kind of an interpretation here. So except for the possibility of counterfeited tongues, all of these aspects of a worship service are legitimate parts of worship. Singing, reading scripture, teaching, exhorting, all of those things are proper parts of worship, but there has to be order in the way that they are done. The problem was, all of this was taking place at the same time. There were few left to listen, and the unbelievers who were there experiencing this would probably leave thinking that that is just a crazy group of people, and I am never going to go back. I had a friend in college who was of a charismatic persuasion, and he used to encouraged me to come to church with him. And he would talk about how exciting it was. And, you know, man, it's, it's you know, got people running around doing things. And, you know, it's just, you never know what's going to happen. I go, I don't know if I want to go to that. I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to know what to expect, you know? So Paul calls the church to gather for the purpose of edification, the mutual building up of one another spiritually. That cannot happen when everyone is vying for attention and doing their own thing. Now the second guideline here is to limit participation. Limiting participation was probably not just reserved for tongues, But tongues was the biggest problem. That's why Paul has devoted the entirety of chapter 14 to that issue. The beginning part of verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn, indicating that they weren't speaking in turn. So rather than a free-for-all where anything goes, only two, maybe three, and never at the same time. Never talking over one another. It's very difficult to have many people talking, and to be able to fully understand what each of them is actually saying. So in a sense, Paul's saying, play nice, take turns, listen to others, and you must have interpretation. If someone is going to stand up and speak in a tongue, you must have interpretation. Latter part of verse 27 and 28. And one must interpret, but if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So the requirement that Paul puts here does at least three things. The first thing is that it stops counterfeit tongues from being spoken. After all, if you have to interpret, and based upon their inherited 
mystery, religion, ecstatic utterance experience, they believed that what they spoke only the gods could hear and understand. They could not understand it themselves. So in that sense, if you're going to speak in some kind of an ecstatic utterance, you've got to have an interpreter. And since no one can interpret this mystery religion thing, you just got to be quiet. You can speak in your heart to God. Whether that be big G or little g, it's debatable. But this is the reason that Paul gives this instruction. Mystery religion or foreign language, no one can understand what is being said. Therefore, if there isn't an interpreter, you're not to speak in this tongue. Secondly, if it is a legitimate language, then interpretation ensures that edification is going to take place. If we've got the greatest pastor that the world has ever known and he doesn't speak in our language, we need someone to interpret that so that we can be edified, built up, through what this great pastor has to say. So if you remember last week, I showed that little video of the French guy reading John 3.16 and it was impassioned, but we had no idea what he was saying. Right? But if we understand what's being said, then we can be edified, we can be blessed, we can be matured through the content of that message. Thirdly, it produces order over what has previously been incredibly chaotic. The assembled gathering of believers should be to glorify God, to worship Him, to receive instruction on how to follow Him more fully, And if an unbeliever is present, they should be able to hear the gospel message and be called to an account for the condition of their heart. When the church gathers for that purpose, it is time well spent. When the church gathers and it's chaos because everyone wants to talk and no one wants to listen and there's a fight going on for whose truth is right, God is not glorified in that. And that is not time well spent. We'll continue and look at the guidelines for prophecy and other guidelines that Paul issues to the church and other areas that added to their chaos. But in thinking about the spiritual gifts in general that Paul has given to us, they're they're to glorify Him. They're to build up the church. Whatever gift God has given you is not for you to feel good about yourself. It's for you to take part in building up the body of Christ. The gift of tongues is widely misunderstood and misapplied even in our own day, and that's why this passage is so important. It's the most complete teaching on the gift of tongues, and if we think about how Paul ties that back to the prophecy of Isaiah, I think it makes a lot more sense in understanding all that Paul says as it relates to this gift. The reason you and I are to come to this place week after week, year after year, is to worship Him, to glorify Him, to be instructed how to follow Him. And when we don't do that, when that's not our purpose, we've totally missed the point. Let's pray.